Welcome to a history of the space race podcast, episode 25, Reprogramming Apollo. Last time, I began by describing how NASA was starting to face the limits of what Congress was willing to fund, even for a popular space program. Unable to manage Gemini's budget in a world of limited funds, James Chamberlain's career took a hit when he was relieved of all duties as manager of the Gemini program. Today, I'm going to talk about the loss of a much more senior manager due to the ongoing troubles over limited funds, the director of manned spaceflight, Bernard Holmes. In his place, will come a new associate administrator, George Miller, who will revolutionize the Apollo program with the decision to engage in all-up testing for the Saturn V rocket. Let me start from the beginning. Holmes was one of NASA's managers brought on specifically in response to the Apollo program. After President Kennedy's State of the Union address in May 1961 urging the nation to commit itself to landing on the moon, NASA Administrator James Webb went looking for talent to oversee the various programs that would be needed to get there. In September 1961, Webb appointed Holmes as the Director of the Office of Manned Spaceflight. This was an important position that would oversee not just the Apollo program, but the Mercury as well as the future Gemini program. Prior to joining NASA, Holmes worked at a number of big-name engineering companies of the day, including Bell Labs and RCA. As the director of the Office of Manned Spaceflight, Holmes was to oversee the work of the field offices involved in the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo programs. Mainly, this was the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston, Texas, and the Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama. Holmes would not, however, have any direct control over these field centers. They would remain largely independent field centers, but Holmes would now more closely monitor the manned spaceflight programs than NASA headquarters had done in the past. Having been brought on specifically in response to the Apollo program, Holmes appears to have seen it as his mission to carry out President Kennedy's directive to land on the moon before 1970s. Holmes viewed all other NASA objectives as secondary to the goal of meeting the president's deadline, especially pure scientific research. I have now mentioned this theme a few times across several episodes that within NASA, there was a tension between the engineers working on manned spaceflight and scientists engaged in pure space research, such as exploration of solar winds and sampling of the upper atmosphere. Holmes's attitude that the effort to land on the moon before 1970 should be prioritized above all else helped to inflame these tensions between the engineers and the scientists. 
I touched on this briefly in episode 17 when I discussed the Ranger program. In June 1962, Holmes was the one who sent a memo to a separate directorate that he did not oversee, the Office of Space Science, and told them basically that all scientists involved in the investigation of the moon should give top priority to collecting information that would be helpful to identifying a lunar landing site. The memo explicitly and curtly said that the lunar landing was the project of overriding importance. In other words, the Apollo program, an engineering project, was more important than whatever you, space scientist, was doing. In an agency that has a culture of cooperation, this order from the director of the Office of Manned Spaceflight to the people in the Office of Space Science, which Holmes did not oversee, was jarring to say the least. I think it's fair to say that the scientists saw Holmes's memo as dismissive of space science, whereas I think Holmes felt fully justified, even duty-bound, as he was carrying out the top national priority as unambiguously ordered by the President of the United States. But Holmes's singular emphasis on the priority of the Apollo program would soon have him butting heads with Administrator Webb himself. Their disagreement would center over the proper amount and allocation of NASA's budget. The disagreement over budgeting first emerged in late 1962, during NASA's first budget crunch. On September 28, 1962, Congress finally passed a law giving NASA $3.7 billion for fiscal year 1963, several months after the fiscal year had already begun. By this time, NASA knew that the amount it had requested did not appear to be enough for the manned spaceflight programs, especially Gemini and Apollo. In total, NASA appeared as if it would be short by about $400 million. On October 9, 1962, Holmes asked Webb and NASA Deputy Administrator Robert Siemens to make a supplemental budget request for fiscal year 1963. Siemens, however, refused the request. NASA had just received its appropriations after months of delay. Making a supplemental budget request now, so soon after getting its funding, would open the agency up to allegations of mismanagement. In lieu of making a supplemental budget request, Holmes suggested cutting funds from other NASA programs. These funds would then be reallocated to fill the gap for the manned spaceflight programs. In particular, NASA's space science and technology development programs had budgets that added up to about $400 million, exactly what was needed to fill the funding gap for Gemini and Apollo. In fact, Holmes wanted to do more than just meet the needs of the Apollo program, He wanted to pour everything into the program and make a lunar landing early 
before 1967, the year that the lunar landing was at that time scheduled to occur and well ahead of President Kennedy's 1970 deadline. On November 21, 1962, Webb, Holmes, and other NASA management met with President Kennedy to discuss the timeline for the lunar landing and NASA's budget. Of particular import was whether the lunar landing could or should be done prior to 1967. Holmes favored obtaining or reallocating funds to Apollo for an earlier landing date, while Webb favored the current schedule in maintaining a broader space program. As a result of the meeting, President Kennedy asked for NASA's position on the priority that the agency should give to the moon landing in comparison to other programs under NASA's responsibility. On November 30, 1962, Webb laid out his position as administrator of NASA. He stated that Apollo was being executed with the utmost urgency and was the agency's top priority. Indeed, Apollo alone was consuming about three quarters of all NASA resources. But, he said, the United States could not demonstrate superiority in space by a lunar landing program alone. He insisted that NASA must pursue a balanced space program. He specifically rejected the idea of canceling space science and technology programs merely to funnel that money to Apollo. He also rejected the idea of making a supplemental budget request. Instead, NASA should manage with the resources it had and continue to aim for 1967 as the lunar landing date, rather than trying to bring that date forward. President Kennedy backed Webb's position to mean a broad-based space program. In early 1963, however, Holmes testified to Congress that the failure to ask Congress for supplemental funding or to reallocate funding from other programs to Apollo had delayed the manned spaceflight effort by about four to five months. This testimony once again put Holmes at odds with the NASA administrator and raised again whether NASA should have a broad-based program or one focused solely on Apollo. Webb maintained his prior position for a broad program. President Kennedy again backed Webb. This disagreement between Holmes and Webb precipitated Holmes' decision to leave NASA. But, in addition to disagreement over NASA's priorities, Holmes and Webb butted heads over how much control Holmes should have on the manned spaceflight programs. Holmes essentially felt he should have a free hand in these matters. But as I mentioned back in episode 21, Mercury's Sunset, Webb made the decision not to conduct the MA-10 mission which would have been the seventh manned Mercury mission. Webb had seen little gain from such a mission and a lot of risk. On June 6th and 7th, 1963, Holmes, Webb, and other NASA management 
meant to make a final decision about whether to conduct the MA-10 mission. President Kennedy had left the decision up to NASA and would not intervene one way or the other. On June 12, 1962, Webb told Congress that NASA would not conduct another Mercury mission. That same day, Holmes abruptly announced that he would be leaving NASA to return to the private sector. Although Holmes is not exactly a household name today when it comes to the space race, he was a pretty well-known figure at the time. In fact, he ended up on the cover of Time magazine in August 1962 and had been lauded as the nation's space planner in light of his direct responsibility over Apollo and all manned spaceflight. So his abrupt departure from NASA was something that was noticed. To replace Holmes, Webb once again went outside the agency and sought out talent from the private sector. This time, Webb recruited George Miller. His last name is actually spelled like Muller, as in Robert Muller, but apparently he pronounced his last name as Miller. Miller is another name to be remembered. Way back in episode 8, I said if you could credit any one person as most responsible for getting the United States to the moon landing before 1970, that person was James Webb. Well, if you expand that list to the two people most responsible, in my opinion, the second person would be George Miller. Although Miller was from the outside, he had worked on Air Force manned spaceflight studies back in the late 1950s before NASA came into being, and he was up to speed on NASA's selection of lunar orbital rendezvous as the mode for getting to the moon. Miller accepted Webb's offer to work at NASA on one condition, that NASA would restructure its management organization. Fortunately, Webb wanted to do this anyways following the end of the Mercury program to better focus on Apollo. Under the agency's previous structure, which was established in November 1961 to reorient the agency in light of the Apollo program, Deputy Administrator Robert Siemens had been assigned day-to-day -day oversight of operations at NASA, including all field centers. Over time, as the Apollo program got underway, this was far too much work for one person. Under the reorganization, which took effect in November 1963, NASA would have three new associate administrators who reported to Siemens. These three associate administrators oversaw three different topics, manned spaceflight, space science applications, and advanced research and technology. Miller took the associate administrator position for manned spaceflight. In his new position, Miller would have direct control over the three field centers directly relevant to manned spaceflight. These were the Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama, responsible for building the rockets and overseen by Werner von Braun, the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston, Texas, responsible for the Gemini and Apollo spacecraft development and overseen by Robert Gilruth, 
in the Launch Operations Center at Cape Canaveral, Florida, and overseen by Kurt Debus, a German-American rocket engineer that came to the United States along with Werner von Braun after the Second World War. By the way, the Launch Operations Center will soon be renamed the Kennedy Space Center at the end of November 1963, following President Kennedy's assassination, a topic I'll cover next time. Miller's success at convincing Webb to give him control over the field centers, which had a tendency to act like independent little duchies within NASA, was a major concession. Holmes and his predecessor, who oversaw manned spaceflight, Abbe Silverstein, had both requested this kind of control over the field centers. Both had been denied. But this change would now be made for Miller. As a side note, now was when Gemini officially became a program. I've been referring to a Gemini program in past episodes, but up until now in November 1963, Gemini was still technically referred to as the Gemini Project. As part of the reorganization, however, a Gemini Program office was finally established so that the Gemini program now had more status than a simple one-off project. The fact that this took two years to do rather illustrates how Gemini was often treated as the unwanted child of Apollo, even though it was integral to the success of the Apollo program. Miller's new position as Associate Administrator of the Office of Manned Spaceflight was created to give NASA headquarters stricter control over field center operations, to coordinate their activities, to keep costs under control, and most importantly now, to keep flight schedules on time. At the time of the reorganization, the field centers involved in manned spaceflight had their hands full. Von Braun's team in Alabama were busy building the F-1 and J-2 engines for the Saturn V rocket. Gil Ruth's team in Houston was busy running the Gemini and Apollo programs. And Debus's team in Florida was busily constructing new facilities to assemble and launch a Saturn V rocket. Given the modular way in which the engineering for the Apollo program had been broken down, there was no immediate need for day-to-day -day coordination between the field centers but someone had to make sure that the three field centers were being managed technically so that the spacecraft would integrate at all levels when the time came. For example, one conflict that Miller resolved early in his tenure was control over space tracking systems. I've described these separately before in different episodes, but NASA had two tracking systems. One was an array of about 18 sites, which was co-opted from those early efforts during the International Geophysical Year to track the world's first satellite. This array was used to track the Mercury program's orbital missions. This array of tracking sites, however, could not handle tracking and communication for missions further away from Earth, say, missions to the moon. For missions to the moon, the other tracking system, the Deep Space Network, would be needed. 
The Deep Space Network was an array of just three sites, located roughly equidistantly around the world. This system was originally designed for communication with unmanned probes to the moon and other planets, and thus fell under the control of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Miller worked out a political compromise between the field centers over control of the Deep Space Network. The NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, that's the one located near Greenbelt, Maryland, would be responsible for the technical operation of the Deep Space Network. This made sense as Goddard is generally responsible for space research and space applications. Meanwhile, JPL would have operational control of the network during unmanned missions, and the Manned Spacecraft Center would have control during the Apollo missions. One of the things that Miller had been called upon to do was to manage the various field centers on technical matters. Although Miller was an engineer, he obviously couldn't do all the technical oversight by himself. So NASA headquarters retained contractors to observe and comment upon technical aspects of the field center's work. For example, GE was retained to review quality assurance and reliability procedures. Bellcom was retained to review flight plans and trajectories for getting to the moon and back. The retention of these contractors at times rubbed the field centers the wrong way. The NASA personnel at the field centers felt that NASA headquarters was intruding on operations under their purview. And they certainly did not like outsiders, which sometimes includes not only the contractor but headquarters as well, telling them what to do. Worse still, sometimes these contractors created work for the field centers by giving NASA headquarters reports based on outdated information. For example, this happened when Bellcom gave headquarters a report on flight trajectories that alarmed headquarters. When headquarters inquired, the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston had to respond and explain to headquarters that they were no longer doing what Bellcom said that they were doing. Now, having been both an auditor and an auditee, I can say the experience is no fun for anyone, but these contractors were doing exactly what was supposed to happen after the reorganization in November 1963, getting the field centers to explain themselves to headquarters on the technical issues, even if that was annoying and created extra work. Miller also had contractors and members of his office work on two other projects immediately that would profoundly change the Apollo program. The first was the creation of the very boring sounding Apollo Systems Specification Book. Despite the incredibly dull name, the Apollo Systems Specification Book was incredibly important. The aim of the book was to lay out the objectives of the Apollo program with specificity, rather than just saying, as they were up to that time, that they were going to land a man on the moon and bring him safely back to Earth before the end of the decade. The Apollo Systems Specification Book 
is the first time that NASA lays out the fact that there will be more than one manned lunar mission, and they describe the goals for lunar exploration. They also worked out some basic ground rules for the mission to the moon. For example, the launch must take place during the day in the event an emergency recovery is needed. The first lunar landing would only last between 21 and 48 hours. And finally, the first mission to the moon must be a circumlunar flight, not a landing. This was so that the engineers could understand whether the Apollo spacecraft's service module engine could be restarted in space around the moon. The second project that Miller asked his contractors and his office to work on was a study on the likelihood of a lunar landing by 1970. This was an important change because he was basically asking his team not to look at the current schedule but to look at where things actually stood. The report came back telling Miller that there was only a 1 in 10 chance that the lunar landing would actually happen before 1970. Based on this report, Miller began reprogramming Apollo to ensure that it would meet President Kennedy's deadline. And here, he would make two more major decisions to trim the Apollo program schedule. The first major decision was the cancellation of all manned Apollo missions on the Saturn I rocket. So originally, the Apollo program called for four manned missions in an Apollo command capsule in Earth orbit. These missions were to not only test out the Apollo command module, but to learn about operating a spacecraft in space. But with the Gemini program now underway to teach NASA how to fly a spacecraft in Earth orbit, these four Apollo missions seemed increasingly unnecessary. Moreover, as development of the Apollo spacecraft progressed, NASA realized that it would need more and more time to finish qualifying the spacecraft for a lunar mission. I'll get into the development of the Apollo spacecraft in a future episode, but setting aside the lunar lander for a moment, the Apollo spacecraft actually consists of two modules. One is the command module, which is the cone-shaped portion of the spacecraft that carries the crew and is used for re-entry, and the other is the service module, which is the cylindrical-shaped portion of the spacecraft that carries all the propulsion and power systems. A diagram of this can be seen in the link in the episode description or on spaceracehistorypodcast.com. In order to test the Apollo spacecraft in space around Earth, NASA planned to use the Saturn I rocket rather than the Saturn V rocket. This was because the Saturn I's development was already well underway, so the rocket would be available before the Saturn V, and this would allow NASA to begin testing the Apollo spacecraft in space at an earlier date. Moreover, for test purposes, the spacecraft just needed to reach Earth orbit, whereas the Saturn V would be capable of sending the spacecraft all the way to the moon.
As the Apollo spacecraft developed, however, NASA realized that the Saturn 1 rocket could lift the Apollo command module into Earth orbit, but it could not lift the command module and the service module into orbit. But before going to the moon, NASA would need to test the command module and the service module together in Earth orbit. The solution was for Von Braun and his team in Huntsville, Alabama to create an upgraded version of the Saturn 1 rocket. That is, a more powerful version of the Saturn 1. This would come to be known as the Saturn 1B rocket. The problem presented to the Apollo program schedule now was the need to man rate three separate rockets. The Saturn 1 rocket for Earth orbital tests of the Apollo command module, the Saturn 1B for Earth orbital tests of the Apollo command and service modules, and the Saturn 5 rocket for the actual missions to the moon. As you can probably appreciate by now from the problems man rating the Redstone, Atlas, and Titan II rockets, man rating a rocket takes time. The rocket can't simply work, even if it is a reliable rocket. The rocket must meet specific and exacting technical specifications for safety reasons. By killing the manned Apollo missions that were reliant on the Saturn 1 rocket, Miller cut not only the flight schedule, but the time and effort needed to man rate the Saturn 1. Now, only the Saturn 1B and the Saturn 5 would need to be man rated. Although the Apollo command module would not be checked out on a manned mission on the Saturn 1 rocket, the command module would be checked out during a manned mission on the Saturn 1B rocket along with the service module. In addition to cutting time, this reprogramming also saved the Apollo program around $280 million. The second major decision that Miller would make to keep the Apollo program on schedule was the decision to proceed with all-up testing. This is the decision that Miller is most remembered for. At the time, standard practice for rocket development was to do a step-by-step, stage-by-stage flight testing. This step-by-step, stage-by-stage testing was incredibly time-consuming. In fact, the development of the Saturn 1 rocket is a pretty good example of this. The development of the Saturn 1 by Von Braun and his team began way back in 1957. Using eight H1 engines, the Saturn 1 was to put out 1.5 million pounds of thrust. The first flight test of the Saturn 1 dubbed the SA-1 mission, finally took place four years after development began on October 27, 1961. This suborbital test flight was fully successful, but it only tested the first stage of the rocket. The second test, SA-2, took place about six months later on April 25, 1962. The mission was also successful, but again, this launch only tested the first stage of the rocket. 
The mission was to test the structure and improve fuel supply and performance on the rocket. The third test, SA-3, occurred about six months after that, on November 16, 1962. This test was largely successful again, but again only tested the first stage. The fourth mission, SA-4, launched about another six months later on March 28, 1963. Yet again, this was only a test of the first stage of the rocket. In short, by the end of 1963, the Saturn I rocket had been in flight testing for two years, and yet only the first stage of the rocket had been tested based on a step-by-step -step incremental approach to rocket development. If this pace of development was going to be repeated for two further rockets, the Saturn 1B and the Saturn 5, NASA was not going to make it to the moon before 1970. So, in October 1963, before he was even officially associate administrator, Miller went to Werner von Braun, Robert Gilruth, and Kurt Debus, the directors of the three field centers in manned spaceflight, and he told them that they must drop the stage-by-stage -stage flight testing for the Saturn V rocket. Instead, the Saturn V would be subject to all-up testing. That is, every launch of the Saturn V would have every stage every single time. This would dramatically cut down on the testing schedule. Miller's direction to engage in all-up testing for the Saturn V was met with murmurs of recklessness from the engineers working on the Saturn V at the Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama. These engineers, many of whom were among the German rocket engineers that joined von Braun in fleeing to America after the Second World War, had a conservative, incremental mentality toward engineering. They believed this approach was necessary, particularly in the case of manned spaceflight, where safety of the astronaut was sacrosanct. Remember that back in February 1961, it was these engineers who insisted on an additional Mercury-Redstone booster development test before permitting the first manned launch to go forward. And some have attributed this delay caused by the extra test as the reason the Soviets were able to launch the first person into space before the United States. Miller, however, presented his arguments for all-up testing with pure, undeniable logic. First, he pointed out that NASA was never going to launch enough Saturn Vs to create confidence that the rocket was man-rated based on the number of successful launches. With timing and funding constraints, the number of launches of the Saturn V that could be reserved purely for testing was always in the single digits. And statistically, it did not make any difference whether there were four or six or eight successful Saturn V launches before putting a human on top of that rocket. Each successful launch in this scenario, assuming they were successful launches, 
would just be wasting perfectly good equipment on a test without actually building confidence in the rocket overall. Second, stage-by-stage -stage testing did not actually help prepare the ground control team for the actual operation of the Saturn V rocket. Whenever a new stage is added to a rocket, the checkout and countdown procedures are different. For example, how long it will take to fuel the rocket will be different depending on how many stages there are. So for ground control, that is the folks at the Launch Operations Center in Florida, stage-by-stage -stage testing was just a waste of time. Third, the incremental testing approach favored by the German rocket engineers assumed failure. If the first test is fully successful, it's unclear what the engineers are supposed to do next. This is actually exactly what happened during the testing for the first stage of the Saturn I rocket. Von Braun and his team had allocated four tests for the first stage of the Saturn I. But the first test was perfect, so now they had three more tests on their hands for no particular reason. After Miller presented his arguments to Von Braun, Gilruth, and Debus, Miller did not entertain debate. A week after informing them of the plan to go with all-up testing, he sent a teletype with a new condensed flight schedule based on all-up testing. He then announced that the new flight schedule would be made public by the end of November 1963. Here, we see that Miller had a very different management style than Holmes when it comes to manned spaceflight. In 1962, when NASA was making the final decision to select Lunar Orbital Rendezvous to go to the moon, Holmes, along with Siemens, had insisted that headquarters should not dictate the answer, even though those in headquarters showed an early inclination toward Lunar Orbital Rendezvous. Instead, Holmes herded each field center particularly the Manned Spacecraft Center under Gilruth and the Marshall Space Flight Center under Von Braun, toward a single decision over the course of an entire year. Holmes's style of management certainly had benefits to it. When NASA's decision on Lunar Orbital Rendezvous was attacked from the outside, NASA was united in defending that decision. But now Miller's management style also had benefits. At this time in late 1963, there was little time for debate. Apollo was already behind schedule, and there was really no other option to catch up. For all their complaining, no engineer at the Marshall Space Flight Center disputed Holmes's argument that all-up testing was necessary if NASA was going to have any hope of landing on the moon before 1970. Von Braun himself referred to Holmes's arguments as impeccable. To compensate for the risks of all-up testing, Miller emphasized that NASA must focus on thorough testing at manufacturing plants before delivering equipment to Cape Canaveral. In the past, when rockets and spacecraft were delivered to Cape Canaveral, the ground team would dismantle them, 
check all the components, and then put it back together for launch. That was no longer going to be the procedure. All equipment must reach the Cape as flight-ready hardware. This would help build confidence that when the Saturn V rocket was delivered to the Cape, it would work the first time. We have already seen in past episodes that NASA was already on a trend to emphasize broad qualification testing at the points of manufacture, rather than testing at the points of delivery. This approach had been emphasized in particular for the Gemini program, where budget limitations forced cuts on reliability testing in favor of qualification testing. The Soviet Union's failure to adopt a similar emphasis on qualification testing is the difference that will mark the eventual success of NASA's Saturn V rocket and the failure of Sergei Korolev's N1 rocket. One fun fact for the future that likely will not be covered by this podcast, Miller's decision to cut the manned Apollo missions with the Saturn I rocket and his decision to mandate all-up testing for the Saturn V will end up leaving NASA with surplus Apollo command modules and Saturn rockets. In the 1970s, this surplus equipment will give birth to some of the most memorable missions in NASA's history. The launch of Skylab, America's first space station, and the Apollo-Soyuz test project. By November 1963, America's manned spaceflight program was suffering from some growing pains. Both the Gemini program, which I discussed last episode, and the Apollo program were behind schedule. But at the same time, both are now under new management, and measures are being taken to right the ship before NASA gets too far off schedule. It is during this time period when the manned spaceflight program is somewhere between sinking and swimming that the entire nation suffered a shock, the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. More about that next time.